Well, a very welcome, warm welcome to you all. I know that very well that you're as excited as I am to be here today. Um, we're celebrating our 26th Cameron Mackintosh, visiting professor at Contemporary Theatre. And here is Cameron. Cameron, what a fantastically creative gift you gave to the college all those years ago um, to enable such a diverse cast of characters that you have in your programme there to come and spread their creativity to the university. It's been the most marvellous gift and we thank you very much for that. Tonight, of course, we're here to welcome the leading playwright, Sir Tom Stoppard. I'm sure that you feel, as I do, immensely privileged and excited to be present for the inaugural talk from Sir Tom. I feel it would be insulting for me to try and encapsulate in a few words his great works, and I know that you will feel that too. You know as well as I do what they are, and you also know why we are in awe of him. I will, however, mention just one play, Jumpers, which I'm sure you know, where he explored the field of academic philosophy. Supernatural powers must have been at work as he wrote it, to give him a premonition in the early 1970s that he would be coming to St. Catharines as the Cameron Macintosh professor. He must have known that we have the best gym in the university <laughs> and that we have a team of acrobatic professors of philosophy. But look at the hand of fate that guided the production of Jumpers over the years. First performed in 1972 by the National Theatre Company, at the Old Vic in London, Dorothy, played by Diana Rigg, Cameron Mackintosh professor. After Broadway in 1974, it next moved to the Royal Exchange Manchester in 1984 with Tom Courtney as George and Julie Walters as Dorothy, directed by Nick Heitner, Cameron Mackintosh professor. <laughs> Michael Codron, who's here with us uh, today, Michael Codron, also Cameron Mackintosh professor, produced the play at the Aldrich in 1985. And finally, after opening for the Royal National Theatre at the Littleton in 2003, it moved to Broadway in 2004 with Simon Russell Beale, Cameron Mackintosh professor, <laughs> as George. Maybe this was all due to the British astronauts in jumpers. So, tonight, we welcome you warmly, Sir Tom, and with huge admiration. And I invite you now to come and to profess to us. Well, what, what, what a really smashing welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Roger, for your welcome to St. Catharines. Cameron, it's an honor. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you from the world. And, um, <laughs> God, here I am. Um, <laughs> the combination of, of the words 
professor and Oxford, um, they induced in me a sense of awe. Uh, this feeling might not necessarily in the breast of people who've actually been educated at Oxford. But to me, a, a professor and an Oxford man, but, uh, when applied to um, a subject like the contemporary theatre, uh, they, they somehow uh, make me feel that at some stage a category mistake has been made. <laughs> and I'm here professing on the contemporary theatre at Oxford, and that's how I feel. And even, even the concept of a professor of drama uh, is, is not an ancient one. And um, I actually feel slightly nervous about uh, what kind of expectations such a term uh, produces in you. Um, kind of professorial coherence, and in, internal, interior consistency in what I speak about, the, the remarks I make, and I suppose a kind of self-assured deployment of objective propositions towards a thesis, for heaven's sake, or at the very least, towards an inquiry into a defined field of interest. In my case, I suppose the field would be thought to be the, pra the practice of writing contemporary plays in the sense that I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I um, have to tell you straight away that I don't at the moment feel that I know how to write a play. And if I did, I'd be in the middle of one instead of fretting in the vacuum between the last play and the next one. <coughs> On the other hand, um, the idea of a professor of English and drama uh, is well established. And this is a very happy thought for me. It's like having a golf ball placed on a tee all ready to be smacked half as far as I can see down the fairway of my talk. And um, I can deal with the rough and the bunkers when I get to them. I don't play golf, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I read a lot of stuff and I can talk the talk. And if I'd read a lot of stuff about the practice, indeed the theory, of writing in contemporary theater, I could do a lecture out of my reading and possibly come up with something publishable. Um, some observations on the theory and practice of 20th century, 21st century theater. Um, that's a bullet you've dodged at the moment um, because what I do in fact speak out of is personal experience. And of course, this obliges me to say immediately that uh, it entails an embarrassing amount of self-reference. And I can only hope that um, 
it, some, it does actually echo and bounce back and is referential to something beyond my personal experience, which it probably is. A recent experience um, that I've had was to go to, to Germany to see the, a, a production in German in a nice town called Wiesbaden of my last play, in the sense of most recent, perhaps I should add. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um, a couple of things came out of this visit, and I'll sort of take them one at a time and try and get my ducks in a row here. Uh, on Saturday, uh, I had dinner with a director who is due to direct this, this particular play, The Hard Problem, uh, next time it's out there elsewhere. And uh, we've been talking about it on the phone quite a lot. And he was getting sort of very excited about, oh, I don't know, uh, just to kind of put it into a sort of shorthand, into messing about with it, as I might call it. And he um, was quite excited about having all the actors on stage throughout from the beginning, sitting in a row and watching. And I was just keeping mum, because I'm thinking, uh, yeah, but uh, what we could do is just do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just, as it were, just do the instructions on the packet. <laughs> Michael Cotton and I know about this. Um, we, we've, we've had some good times together, especially with the late Peter Wood, a director. And as far as I recall, um, Mike, Michael, you know, generally speaking, he'd he sort of like what's on the page, and, and we'd kind of try to do what it said in the way that it said it. Um, there was one I wrote which actually <clears throat> required, this is not part of my lecture at all, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> it, it required Michael, Michael Cotton to produce, that is to say, pay for a jeep to drive onto the stage and be in the play for approximately 20 seconds. <laughs> and, and that's it. And, and he kept saying to me, do we need to have the jeep? <laughs> years later, he, he, he um, um, what's the word? Uh, he implied, no, he insinuated that I said to him, no jeep, no play. <laughs> this, this would have been so out of character, I assure you. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of things came out of this visit to Wiesbaden, and one of them was this. I'd sort of had my dinner uh, with my friend, uh, and I'd kind of not really said anything, uh, but I'd just felt maybe in the fullness of time, we'll just kind of do what it says. And then I went to Wiesbaden, there was a very nice production of The Hard Problem, um, you know, a really decent production. And I, it was the fourth time I'd seen it, uh, including a couple of productions in America. And um, it kind of bothered me a bit. It, they all felt a bit like peas in a pod. Uh, and the only exception was that I'd made one really serious 
simple but uh, important alteration to the play, just by reversing the two halves of a scene after seeing it two or three times. This is because the director in San Francisco, the wonderful woman, Carrie Perloff, she kept, she kept bitching at me about how am I supposed to know that five years have elapsed between scene three and four. And I would point out that this was um, uh, in the scene itself, uh, somewhat be between the lines, somewhat late. Um, and she was very happy about it. And, and then one day I thought, well, if I actually turn, this, turn this, the scene back to front, so it's, you know, there'd be characters A, B, and C, and, it used, and now well, I'll put character C in at the front, because he actually does mention the five years. And so I kind of said to whoever was concerned with these things, in future, do you mind if we do this with every, every script which goes out to any theater that wants to do it? And that was all done. Um, and then I went to Germany, and they'd ignored that and done it the first way. And you might then say, so how was the poor German audience supposed to know that five years had gone by? Um, but in fact, the director, I don't know whether this was kind of a sort of master stroke or something which made my toes curl. He just projected a big sign saying, five years later. <laughs> um, on, the, on the whole, I took it as a, as a healthy corrective um, on my attitude to how my stuff should be dealt with. Um, the second thing, uh, that came out of this trip to Germany was kind of this, really. Um, the, the play was three years old. Um, this is the first time it had been done in German, and it was explained to me that actually I was quite lucky to have the play done at all, because in the German theater, uh, doing text-driven contemporary work by living writers was not their strong suit. I didn't really need this to be explained to me because all English playwrights know, without feeling any obligation to go to Germany and check it out, you know, we all know about the German theater, which is that roughly it's kind of adventure playground for, for directors um, who are much, much more comfortable if the author is dead for obvious reasons. <laughs> So I, 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 I made some mild remark about, you know, I'm not, not sure whether that actually covers the field uh, properly for theater. Uh, and this, this, this friend of mine, this German writer, he said, well, of course you think that, because you're an English playwright and you've got Shakespeare, so you think that drama is a branch of literature. And I'm going, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, uh, you know, on the, on the gold standard, um, I should say, um, there, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. That's definitely literature. It would be something fantastic if one has written it oneself. And this feeling that down the ages, a lot of the pleasure and cleverness and joy and so forth of our theater 
is to do with precise words in a precise order, meaning more than the sum of their parts, that kind of feeling. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be philosophical. You know, um, uh, let me think. I'm pretending I'm making this up as I go along. In fact, this, I have actually thought of three examples, and I forgot the second one, but that's life. Uh, <laughs> I've remembered it. Oh, Tim, hello. <laughs> How's your hip? <laughs> okay, well, you, you, you're always the hippest person I knew, actually. Um, yeah, so, you know, how about this? Um, to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. And you think, yeah, that's another one. That's a good one. I, that, that's definitely literature. All the way down, I mean, I won't come all the way down to the present, but, um, you know, a line like, I've always depended, is it? I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, when I was, um, you know, 17, I think I really would, well, no, at 17, I wanted to be a journalist, and I was one, and I was very happy, but around about the age of 21, when I was beginning to think, you know, I really want to be a proper writer. Uh, I was thinking in terms of literature. Um, I did actually get infected by the joy of live theater, but um, I remember at the time, there was a sort of fork in the road at that moment, you know, should I, should I write the great English novel or should I write the great English play? Um, because they were both yoked together under this um, very, very, suggestive and uh, deep in the soul heading, which was the literary life. And um, for various reasons, I woke up to the fact that a great deal of, a great more attention was played to, to young plays uh, in 1960 than to young novels. It was all kind of happening. Um, but yes, I, I felt that um, I was half wide open to the idea of being a writer on the strength of how I wrote things. You know, there's a, there's a nice line in uh, Oxonian Richard Ellman's biography of James Joyce, when he says that, um, oh God, I'll try and get this right, Nora Joyce, um, no, the idea that Nora, no, not at all, no, the idea that sentences could be framed with varying degrees of skill was new to her and on the whole unacceptable. <laughs> um, to me, it was acceptable from the age of seven, I should think. Um, I absolutely got that sentences could be framed with various degrees of skill. Um, writing my own plays, uh, that was a big thing to do with it. I was always, I've always been, I suppose, especially comfortable. I have to be careful how I put this, it sounds so toffee-nosed, but it was, it, I felt more comfortable writing for people with a good vocabulary 
and an education. So a play like Arcadia and the Invention of Love, which was done here by undergraduates. Uh, I came to see it. I was very touched by that. Anyway, you know, the, these sorts of plays, there are a lot to do with drama as literature. So, you know, one might say that this thesis at present is sort of beginning to look as though it's holding up. I've got a bit of paper here which will remind me how this thesis is actually falling apart as you look at it. <laughs> um, One of the things I could have and meant to quote on my list of quotations from famous plays, I was reminded, I went to see Blade Runner, uh, but because I went to see this Blade Runner, previously, like two weeks ago, to prepare for this great event, I watched the old one. And I was reminded that in the first movie of Blade Runner, there is a literary speech towards the end, and actually, it really caught on. I'm not quite sure about you, this particular audience, whether, whether you are the right audience to assent to my proposition that there was a kind of culty feeling about this speech for a long time, which still persists. And um, the replicant, replicate, whatever, he's dying, and he has this rather, rather beautiful speech, screenplay by David Peoples, always give the credit. Uh, the speech is saying, uh, roughly speaking, I'm paraphrasing slightly, he says, I have seen unbelievable things. I have seen attack ships on fire on the shoulder of Orion. And he mentions a couple of other things he's seen, and he says they're all lost in time, like tears in the rain. And it struck me that, yeah, here, Blade Runner is aspiring to something. I love the film, and I wouldn't change or condescend towards any word of dialogue in it. And this talk is kind of about dialogue, not necessarily theater dialogue. Um, but yes, there was a feeling that that uh, for that one minute near the end, the movie was reaching for something extra, which was to do the, with the thing that Nora Joyce found on the whole unacceptable, that there is a way of using the language which transcend, transcends the lexicon. Um, now, about the thesis falling apart, Okay, I would have quite liked to have written David Peoples' speech, not, not hugely, not like there's a divinity that shapes our ends. No, not that much, but I thought it was pretty fine. Um, but then uh, it occurred to me almost immediately that when it comes to other people's dialogue, which I would like to have written, the one which I really, really, really would have loved to have written consists of four words, and the words are, I don't care. How can this be? Well, clearly, we're already kind of seeing through the original palimpsest of what I took off from. Um, it isn't actually theater, contemporary or otherwise, 
is not at its core the use of literature. At its core, it is a kind of multi, multiversal storytelling. So, okay, um, in, in, in the movie The Fugitive, Harrison Ford is um, an innocent man who didn't murder his wife, but um, it is thought that he did murder his wife, and he's being pursued by a detective played by Tommy Lee Jones. And the pursuit goes on and on and on, but finally it kind of comes to a, not a dead end quite yet, but it comes to a point where poor Harrison has got nowhere to turn, he can't go forward, backward, or sideways, and the policeman confronts him. And all poor Harrison can do, I, I can't tell you, I don't remember his uh, character name. All he can do is beseechingly turn to the policeman and say, I didn't kill my wife. And the cop says, I don't care. And I thought that that actually was a completely brilliant line because it turned inside out the essentials of that situation. You know, there's a famous bit in Sartre where he's describing a waiter in a cafe going about his business, and you get the kind of waiterness, the essential existential waiterness of that. In the case of a policeman, you sort of suddenly got, at least I got, maybe I'm making too much of it, but I suddenly got this very, very sort of speary kind of sense that it, that story, that pursuit, was not about justice being done. It wasn't about innocence and guilt. It was about what I do for a living, you know, what, what I have to perform. I have to perform catching you. That's, that's all. That's it. It's over. Um, so, okay, what we are reiterating, I better look at my watch occasionally, actually, um, is... Um, that the things which are going on are not um, the deployment of literary effects. The reason, the, one of the reasons, and perhaps the main reason I'm holding this piece of paper is that on the back of it is a page from Endgame by Samuel Beckett. And I really actually wanted to read you a few lines from stage direction. Look, when you go into a bookshop and buy a copy of Endgame and a copy of Anna Karenina, uh, they both make their physical appearance into our culture in roughly the same form. Um, they're both evidently books. They appear to be equivalent to each other. And my thing today is that that's not true, actually. Um, I thought it was true when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead was first a book. I was completely knocked out by the whole... I mean, that was what it was for. Uh, I've, I was sent a cover in advance, just a dust jacket, and I found a book on my shelf which was roughly the same size and put Rosencrantz and Guildenstern around it and stood it up on the table and sort of looked at it. 
um, the, the book writing, the book writingness of being a writer uh, was incredibly important to me. But back in the bookshop now, um, if, you, if you actually open the one which is called Endgame by Samuel Beckett, uh, it's not quite it's not quite what the other one is. I'm going to read you a few lines. It could go on for, you know, I could read on much longer. Um, I'll read you three lines from a kind of stage setting direction, which is over half a page long, but I won't read all that. And then I'll get into the front of a speech by the main character. Clov goes and stands under window left. Stiff, staggering walk. He looks up at window left. He turns and looks at window right. He goes and stands under window right. He looks up at window right. He turns and looks at window left. He goes out, comes back immediately with a small stepladder carries it over and sets it down on the window left, gets up on it, draws back curtain. He gets down, takes six steps, for example, towards window right, goes back for the ladder, carries it over and sets it down on the window right, gets up on it, draws back curtain. He gets down, takes three steps towards window left, goes back for ladder. What this is... What this is, is a transcription of an event in advance of the event happening. If you imagine um, trying to write down exactly what happens in a Buster Keaton film, you know, which Beckett absolutely adored, you'd end up with something like that. It's not in any sense the same kind of writing which you'd find in, is it in Malloy? Which, which novel? You, you all know this, don't you? Um, I hope. Uh, there's, always, there's a wonderful passage where the pebble he sucks goes from pocket to pick pocket and so on. Anyway, it's not that, it, superficially, it has that discreteness. But it's not that kind of writing, as you, and you know immediately. Ham, by the way, I'll, I'll spare you much of this. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful play, but I'll spare you me reading it. He says, me, he yawns, to play. He holds the handkerchief spread out before him, old stancher. He takes off his glasses, wipes his eyes, his face, the glasses, puts them on again, folds the handkerchief, and puts it neatly in the breast pocket of his dressing gown. He clears his throat, joins the tips of his fingers. Uh, this is, you know, I do, revere, I do sort of revere the, the man, but this is control freakery. <laughs> um, or to put it, to put it less impudently, it's a, it's a connection with a notion of directorial and authorial theatre. It's, as it were, making an assumption about how theatre happens and how you can help it to happen. 
This is um, a central point. You know, I'm speaking here, I'm here as, a, as a writer. Uh, uh, I, I think I directed twice in my life. I'm not interested in being a director. Uh, but I'm very interested and fortunate in the directors that I've worked with. And I kind of understand, I'm beginning almost grudgingly sometimes to understand what's at stake here. Um, one of the, I wanted to tell you this, one of the productions of uh, my last but not most, only most recent play, rather hard problem, um, was, in a, was in a wonderful theater in, in Philadelphia. I've known the director for many years. And so, you know, we started talking occasionally on the telephone. Um, and she started talking about the possibility of saxophone, the music between scenes. There are 11, 10 or 11 scenes. And you have to go from scene to scene to scene with a bit of changing going on. And uh, she started talking about the music that one might accompany this. Uh, Nick Heitner, Professor Nick Heitner, visiting professor. Um, I'm visiting from St. Peter's, by the way. This is an <laughs> honorary thing. Um, so we were talking, uh, Nick Heitner used Bach uh, between the scenes. Um, I never liked to tell him, I haven't told him to this day, that they all sounded like the same bit to me. Um, but apparently it was different bits of Bach, but still. Uh, so I liked rock and roll, really. Um, and Blanca, the director of my play in Philadelphia, started talking about, I thought she saw a kind of dangerous talk. I was a long way away, and she was talking about a saxophone. And I well, I think, yeah, yeah, what like, no, a jazz saxophone. And I'm thinking, actually, that could be quite nice, really. I mean, you know, why, yeah, you know, why be kind of, you know, self-obsessed about these things? Uh, I never thought of that, but it sounds okay to me. And, um, and then I slowly began to realize that this jazz saxophone would entail a jazz saxophonist strolling about, strolling about my play. <laughs> well, at least between scenes. Um, and um, so I kind of absorbed this idea. I'll cut to the end. I go to Philadelphia, play starts, jazz saxophone man who turned out to be a wonderful man aged about 70, and was a marvelous musician. And he played on a David Bowie album, actually, years ago. Anyway, so there he was walking about between scenes and ignoring and being ignored while people were getting on the, taking on the desk and taking off a bed and stuff. And this went on, but between, between the second last and the last scene, as things were just about ship-shape to get on with the play, the saxophone man and the heroine of my play caught each other's eye for about as long as that. Less time than that. 
I have to tell you, this play, by the way, was about, um, among other things, the mystery of consciousness. It was a lot, of, a lot of kind of science slash spiritualism in the play. This thing that Blanca uh, did, this moment when the saxophone player and the fiction character looked at each other for a beat and then carried on with their lives. I have to tell you, it was as though my entire play was in that. That, that. that actually did something which I've been probably trying to do subconsciously, but hadn't brought off because I was actually doing literature in spades, you know. I mean, I, I always do literature in spades in the sense that I don't care what kind of situation is and how demotic the character might be at whatever moment. Um, the, the choice of words in the right order is kind of what I do in my own mind. And clearly, because you've heard me, it's obviously not enough. It's not the only thing I do. A lot of it is then becomes subconscious. But it's just sort of hugely important to me. And what um, this moment, I mean, did you, did you sort of understand what I'm saying about the saxophone moment? Uh, it broke, it just broke some rule about the frontier between the text and the event. Um, Embarrassingly, <clears throat> what I've got written down after saxophone <clears throat> is basically, it's my dead parrot sketch. It's, um, <clears throat> this, is, this, this is a, excuse me. My, <clears throat> my Theresa May moment. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> um, Peter Wood, Michael, uh, wherever you are, he told me this, I, you're probably there, about this production of The Tempest at Oxford. And I, this was, I mean, I'm talking about 40 years ago or more. And I must have, I must have done this story because <laughs> I love it so much, a lot. Uh, I don't recall what I've actually done it in Oxford, which sounds like a bit of a cheek. Um, but anyway, I'll make short work of it. Uh, it's a story about a moment in a production of The Tempest, which was an outdoors college production uh, on, the, on a lawn uh, in natural light. And um, when it came time for Ariel to leave the action of the play and indeed life, and he, he did his literature, drama, his literature thing. And he ran away from the audience across the grass to the edge of the lake. And when he got to the edge of the lake, he kept running, plish, plash, plish, plash, because the director had put a plankway just an inch under the water. So we all kind of watch him running away from us on the top of the water. And by this time, um, the natural light in the day was closing down and it was, it was dusk 
and Ariel uh, ran until he was enveloped in the gloom and was then lost to sight in what was essentially darkness, at which moment a firework rocket was ignited and it went whoosh into the sky and burst into many sparks and all the sparks went out one by one by one and he'd gone. And when you look it up, it says exit aerial. Now, this is the point that we've been on about all this time. That, that whole thing is covered by a stage direction. And I wouldn't be passing on the memory of something which occurred, uh, I suppose, 50 years ago, um, if it hadn't broken through the entire literary impact of the play by William Shakespeare and left a mark on me, which I tried to, as it were, I tried to, make, I tried to allow you to catch it so that you have it too. It's that sort of feeling. And when I first began speaking to audiences, I mean, I've been speaking to, at universities as well, speaking very often to students. Um, this all began um, when I was invited to university in 1970, I think it was. And I didn't, and I didn't, I didn't know what kind of thing I should be doing. I'd never spoken in that way before. But I worked out that what I uh, had discovered so far, uh, was, this was three years after I'd first had a play done professionally, what I discovered was that um, the theatre is actually an event rather than a text. And it takes something to discover this because when you write a play, the process is as insulated and isolated and self-sufficient as uh, writing a sonnet. Uh, you don't actually need anything or anybody except you and what you draw on. And the moment the play begins to take on its own physical existence, which is to say the moment you get into a rehearsal, this entire <laughs> sense uh, of self-sufficiency and so on, it just blows away like dandelion seed. And you are sitting there ultimately day by day by day, especially into the tech, as you, we know, you're sitting there trying to control the physical reality in microseconds and micro levels of light. Everything then becomes no longer to do with le mot juste. I mean, there's a terrible period in putting on a play, you know, doing the, the technical process at the end, where you lose faith in the text. It just seems blank and boring. And it takes a huge amount of, uh, you know, self-confidence to keep believing that it'll come back again. 
But anyway, so while you, when you actually, once, once, once this precious poem of yours uh, is trying to become a play, um, everything you get obsessed about is to do with physics, essentially. It's to do with loudness, quietness, brightness, and most of all, because it's physics, most to do with time. Time. Uh, more than once, I've added um, a couple of words to an exit speech because the door was too far away. Uh, it's a, that, you know, that, that is the priority. It's an important matter. Um, I'm supposed to, you know, as, it's, as I'm a professor, uh, I, think, I think we're supposed to have a bit of back and forth. Uh, <laughs> the stu students insist on that. Are we fine? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, when we... Um, Look, storytelling, this is the sort of peg I'm trying to hang on to. All these things are somehow subsumed into the idea that, you know, we're telling a story. Sometimes it's a new story, but sometimes it's not a new story. It's an old story, which you've heard many times. Think panto. You're not there because you don't know what's going to happen. But it is part of the storytelling humanness in us. Uh, one of my plays, in one of my plays, it turns out that the first scene has actually been written by a character in the second scene. In other words, we do scene one, and you're not supposed to know that you're watching somebody in a play. And, you know, when, we, when Michael Codron and I did the real thing, we were obsessive about when this moment happens in the second scene, which is actually very tricky because not, not, the audience isn't homogenous and some would get it before others. So it was untidy. There was no moment when you got it. Oh, my God, I see. He wrote that. Okay, fine. No, that never happened. Not cleanly. Um, and then when we revived the play something sort of very odd happened to it or to me. I got back into the same kind of mode um, to isolate, work out what brought about this very specific effect among an audience and to protect it so that it happened. And then at some point, I began to worry about the people, however few, who had actually seen the play before. And then it seemed to me that it wasn't even like a process. I went through the phase of it, like ice and water, you know, in, in, in chemis, chemi, chemistry phases. I mean, it's either ice or it's water. There's no middle moment. There's no middle state. And I went from thinking, we have to kind of put, we have to conceal the fact that the first scene is a play into thinking, no, we have to actually reveal it. Uh, because the notion of denouement, 
first of all, seemed redundant, and secondly, it suddenly seemed a bit boring. So I'm talking about being at work on the same play at an in, after an interval of, what would it be, oh, 40 years, 30, 30 or 40 years. Um, so the mystery of the, the nature of the thing which got me invited to stand up here and talk about things around that area, the mystery of the nature of it is intact, uh, ever-present, and ongoing. Um, it's always going to be, it's just, it's just, it's always going to be part of what happens with new work. You kind of find once again the strangeness of theater. So to sum up and leave you time to have a chat with me and so on, um, I would just really essentially say that um, I'm here. I'm going to be doing two more uh, professorial types of things. Uh, I think one probably later this, later this term. Um, it won't be a second and a third lecture like this. It will be something else, conversation with different people. Um, so perhaps I'll see some of you again. Meanwhile, thank you very much indeed for having me. I've been honored to be here. Thank you.